If you have your Bibles, we're going to read in a moment from Genesis 21, and I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we'll look from Genesis 21 to a couple of other places in Genesis, but that's where we'll begin in just a few minutes. We're, um, we're deep now into the three weeks into the series on the faith of our fathers and mothers, those to whom we trace our uh, Judeo-Christian heritage. We've talked about uh, Abraham and uh, Sarah. Today we talk about Isaac and uh, Rebecca. We're going to talk about the promise. We're going to talk about a courageous step. Uh, we're going to talk about the wells, and we'll talk about the ram. We start with the promise. On September 12, in Durham, North Carolina, at Duke Hospital, our sixth grandchild and fifth grandson, Graham uh, Grayson Lane, was born, and uh, he is uh, unusually intelligent and amazingly good-looking. And when I held him for the first time, I, I remarked that to either my, our daughter or our son-in-law who were there, I said, you know, it's, it's just amazing that the potential uh, that I hold in my in my arms. What will he do? What will he contribute? How will he, you know, how will he make the world a better place? When we look into the eyes of newborns, we, we see the future. We, we see great potential. When, when Abraham and Sarah looked into the eyes of their newborn laughter, remember, named Isaac, uh, they, saw, they saw all that you and I see and in addition to that, they saw the future of a, of a nation. We read in Genesis 21, if you have your Bibles open, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac, or laughter, to the son Sarah bore him. Isaac was the child of promise, uh, the one through whom God would fulfill his promise to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, that their descendants would form a great nation. That's the promise. Let's look now at the, the courageous step. Isaac was grown now. Abraham was even older now. And Abraham, understanding that he wouldn't be around much longer, uh, said to his chief servant, probably Eleazar, go find a wife for my son Isaac. Go back to my home country of Mesopotamia, which is present-day Iraq, and, and find for, her, for him and bring back for him a wife. So Eleazar had ten camels filled with saddlebags filled with gifts, and he made his way to the a small town of Nahor at the cool of the evening. He was there when customarily uh, women of the households came to the common well in town uh, to draw water. And he prayed, Lord, I need for you to lead me to the, the young lady who will become the wife, the proper wife of Isaac. And, and he had no more than said amen when he looked up and here came a young lady with a pot on her shoulder and he just, he just knew I've heard men say, maybe some of you, when I saw my wife across the room in the cafeteria or wherever it was, the library or, or the bar or wherever it was that, you know, that you saw her and you, you said to your friend, 
I'm going to marry her. I've heard that a number of times. You just knew. So, so Eleazar sees this young woman and just knew. He introduced himself, told her the reason he'd come, the mission that he was on to find a wife for Isaac. And she invited him home to, to meet her family, and he told them what he was there for. He gave gifts of, of jewelry to Rebecca, the young lady, and, and gifts to her family. And they had an evening together. The next morning, her family asked Rebecca, what do you want to do? And she said, I will go with him. Now, she had just met Eleazar. It was something of a risk, of course, but she just, she just knew. Of course, her family was not perfect. We'll talk about that next week. But, but from her descendants came Jesus himself. Here's the point of that courageous step. Every extraordinary life lived by an ordinary person includes at least one decision where you take a courageous step to do something that others would, would not be willing or maybe would be afraid to do. Every extraordinary life lived by an ordinary person like us includes an extraordinarily courageous decision to, to do what you believe to be right, something that others would be more than likely afraid to do. I'm not encouraging risk, but God did not, did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of courage, and, and those who find life at its best are willing to make extraordinarily courageous decisions. There's a quick little side note about this story. Remember, Abraham the father had sent the servant Eleazar to, to woo a, a, a wife for his son. A lot of scholars have seen in this story a, a foreshadowing or a type of the work of the father and the spirit and the son. And the, the, the father sends the spirit to the world to, to woo people, to, to point people to Jesus. Remember that Eleazar had all these gifts. Can't you just imagine on the way home? Every few miles, he would reach into that saddlebag and, and get a new gift and hand uh, to, to Rebecca. Isaac would want you to have this. He's such a wonderful man, and you're going to love your new life. And, and, and so the Spirit of God goes around wooing people, drawing people, and, and pointing people toward, toward Jesus and, you, and saying you will love your life with him. Well, that's the courageous step. There's the promise through Isaac, God would form a great nation. The courageous step of Rebekah, willing to do what others would have been afraid to do. Now let's talk about the wells. And if you have your Bibles open, find please Genesis 26, just four chapters over, verse 18. Genesis 26, 18. And keep your Bibles open. We're going to look back in a moment at Genesis 22. So this is Genesis 26, 18. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. Now, Travis, that seems like a rather trivial thing in the grand story of Isaac, that he reopened the wells. But I find it to be a really big deal. Something had worked in the past, but the enemy had stopped up the wells and Isaac knew that it was his role to make sure that they produced water still. 
We're talking, remember, about the faith of our mothers and fathers. Our mothers and fathers, our spiritual mothers and fathers, have dug wells over the centuries that have produced living water. But with every generation, the wells are in danger of running dry. Let's apply that to First Baptist Church of Huntsville. We were established in 1809, named then the Enon Baptist Church. Enon is where John the Baptist baptized. And so they named it Enon. It was located up what is near what is now the Executive Airport in Meridianville. There's a, an historic marker uh, that says very near this spot was the Enon Baptist Church. Well, that was in 1809. In the 1830s, a great anti-missionary uh, spirit swept through the Tennessee Valley. There were a handful of Baptist churches at the time, and they divided, some buying into that anti-missionary spirit, others saying, no, we were called uh, to the world, and we were part, I'm so glad to say, of those who, who had that missionary spirit. And I, I'm, even, I'm even proud that we got, we got kicked out. We were in the minority. We got kicked out of the association. And that's why the sign, the historic marker out here says, First Baptist Church of Huntsville is the oldest missionary Baptist church in, in Alabama. We're the second oldest Baptist church. But even in the early days, our forefathers and foremothers had, had a missionary spirit. That was in the, in the 1830s. Then the 1850s, the town of Huntsville was, was growing, and, and so they, had, they must have had tough conversations. I, I can imagine there were a lot of people who lived within walking distance of the church building. But they said, you know, where the, our greatest opportunity for impact is, 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 in, is in Huntsville. And so, around 1860, they, they moved. They relocated. Uh, the Presbyterians and the Methodists had already beaten us here, but they couldn't, beat every, couldn't reach everybody. And so, they, they relocated to what is now the corner of uh, Gallatin and Clinton. And the pastor who led them to do that, the 13th pastor of our church, was Eugene Strode, S-T-R-O-D-E. Eugene Strode was a, a young preacher from Illinois, moved here uh, single. Uh, and he married a lady, Sally Martin, who lived up on Monticeno. So Eugene Strode and Sally Martin married. He, he led our church to, to Huntsville. And today, by either coincidence or divine providence, we have among us a descendant of Eugene Strode and Sally Martin. Remember, Eugene Strode was our 13th pastor. If you are the great-great-grandson of Eugene Strode and Sally Martin, would you please stand? Tim Boone, is the, isn't that crazy? The great-great-grandson of our 13th pastor. Now, I don't mean to put pressure on you. We're going to vote at the end of the service. <laughs> but if it weren't for his great-great-grandfather, we'd have met in Meridianville uh, this morning. So they moved. They took advantage of an opportunity in the 1850s. Then in the 1950s, NASA was here. Huntsville was showing great promise. And so this congregation sent out volunteers sent away people to start 
churches and started churches around Huntsville, many of whom have grown to be significant sister churches in our community. In the 1960s, located over there on Clinton, they had outgrown, far outgrown the property. So they decided to move to the country out here on, uh, on Governor's Drive, affectionately known as the, uh, the uh, tuna, tur- uh, turnip patch. And so they, but they couldn't, it was hard to get a loan in those days for a church to get a loan. And so there, are, there were people in our church, some of whom are sitting in this very room, who took out a second mortgage so that this church could have this place. My point is that in our history, Our spiritual fathers and mothers have dug some really important wells. But with every generation, those wells are in danger of drying up. And in fact, if you remember in the story, Abraham dug the wells, the Philistines, the enemy, had had stopped them up. Our enemy, who, who wanders about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, will do his very best to dry up the wells dug by those who've gone before us. Wells of mission and creativity and vision. Those wells are not unimportant. They are part of the legacy handed to us. But we have to keep them open. In fact, when we do things like these fresh expressions, these new forms of church, it's, it's just a way of redigging the wells. On October the 16th, some people from Apartment Life are going to be here. Apartment Life is that Christian mission agency that places people, Christian people with an apostolic spirit in apartments. So we're going to, they're going to be here. They'll bring greetings in the morning. We're going to have a, a lunch in the afternoon to talk about, to, for anybody who's interested about the possibility of placing our folks in those apartments as missionaries. Just different ways of Redigging the wells. So, there's the promise. Isaac is the, the child of promise. The courageous step, Rebecca. Rebecca changed history by being courageously willing to do what others would have been afraid to do. And then there are the wells that, that Isaac redug. Those wells dug by Abraham that were, were dry. But now let's talk about the ram. We're going to back up in time now a few years to when Isaac was a young teenager. And Genesis 22, we're backing up four chapters. Verse 2, Genesis 22, 2. Then God said, take your son, he's speaking to Abraham, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. What a terribly mysterious command from God. Abraham was confused. He was confused because it seemed contrary to God's nature. Now there were other pagan religions in which child sacrifice was not uncommon. People would sacrifice their children for the sake of a good crop. But this seems so unlike the nature of Jehovah God, whom Abraham had come to know. It also seemed to fly in the face of God's promise. God had, pra- had promised that through Isaac, that these, he, there would become a great nation through his descendants. But Isaac was the only descendant. No Isaac 
No more descendants. So it seems so confusing for Abraham. And yet he, he made preparations. He got the servants together, got Isaac, probably then a young teenager, and they headed toward Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, by the way, where all this took place is the, is, would, would become the place where Solomon would build the, the Jewish temple. It is now the site of uh, the Islamic Dome of the Rock, that gold dome that you see in every picture of Jerusalem. It's the hottest, most hotly debated and fought over piece of property probably on the planet, Mount Moriah. So they got to the, within sight of, maybe at the foot of Mount Moriah, and Abraham said to his servants, stay here. He and Isaac gathered all they would need for the sacrifice. Isaac bore the wood that would burn his body. When they got to the mountain, Abraham in this mysterious scene bound, tied up his young teenage son, placed him on the makeshift altar of wood, drew back his, his body tense, his hand obviously inevitably shaking. Angels must have gasped. I imagine Abraham closing his eyes so as not to see the look of horror and disbelief on the face of his teenage son. Abraham draws back his body tenses. In one blood-splattered moment, the deed would be done. His hand starts forward and God calls out, Abraham, Abraham! Abraham freezes. And the voice of God echoes, don't lay a hand on your son. And the echo of God's thunderous voice fades away. And Abraham hears a rustling in the nearby bush. He looks and there's a ram. And he just knows. God has provided a substitute for his son. He names the place Jehovah Jireh, meaning God will provide He unbound his teenage son, laid the ram on the altar. And again, I know it's mysterious for us. It's so foreign to us. But in in humble obedience to God, he sacrificed the ram. A substitute, a substitute for the son Isaac. The Bible says God was testing Abraham. He was testing Abraham not only for God's sake, but for Abraham's sake. Some of you sports fans might know the name Mike Greenberg. He's a sports commentator. He's a big fan of the New York Jets. Last Sunday, uh, the New York Jets beat uh, the Cleveland Browns in a very close game. I think it was 31 to 30. And Mike Greenberg said on Monday, I heard him on the radio say, that this was such a test for those young players. And he said, now they know they are winners. In the heat of the battle, having won, they they now had new confidence. The same must have been true of Abraham. He must then have known what he perhaps wondered about before. His capacity for obedience. And Abraham now knew. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after Abraham, 2,000 years before us, 
another father-son drama would take place. But this time there would be no ram. And this time it was not the son of Abraham, but the son of God himself. As Isaac carried the wood that would provide fuel for the fire of his own sacrifice, Jesus bore the beam, the wooden beam, that would, that would complete the cross upon which he would die. Romans 8.32, God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. There was no substitute for Jesus, for he became a substitute for us. It is important to remember that Jesus went voluntarily, willingly, lovingly. Isaiah 53, he, he was led like a lamb to slaughter, and yet he didn't even open his Math. It's important to know that, that God offered him lovingly, not out of anger. Remember, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. But there isn't, there's an interesting little thing to consider. In fact, we sang a moment ago, in Christ alone. Did you know there's a controversy surrounding that hymn? We sang the line that, that reads, uh, when on the cross Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Did you know that when Getty and Townend wrote that, that's not, those aren't their words. They wrote, when on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Isn't that interesting? Why would, why would people rewrite the words? Because wrath, it sounds like an angry God, and he is not an ogre. But there is an element of wrath. Remember, as I said, N.T. Wright said, if a, if a wonderful violin maker were to carefully craft a violin for you and give you that violin, and then if you were to use it as a tennis racket, he or she would be angry that you had wasted such a gift. And so God is angry at our sin, but he is not an, he is not an ogre. The cross of Christ represents God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, and unrelenting love. Real quickly, as we close about the substitute again. Catherine Tucker Wyndham is a wonderful, the late Catherine Tucker Wyndham, a wonderful Alabama author. I, I quote her often, and I hope you won't mind if I tell one of her stories one more time. She was a little girl in school. She and her friend Ruth found a frog. She said she couldn't remember where they found it, but it was recess, and nobody was in the room, and the temptation was just too great. So Catherine and Ruth put the frog in Miss Pierce's drawer, the drawer of her desk. At the end of recess, everybody filed back into the room. Miss Pierce, of course, inevitably opened the drawer. The frog jumped out on her, scared her. And when she finally caught her breath, she demanded, who did this? And she said her eyes were like daggers. Catherine prepared to raise her hand to confess, but her her little boyfriend, Lyles Carter, shot her one of those looks as if to say, I've got this. And so Lyles Carter raised his hand and said, I did it, Miss Pierce. Miss Pierce wasn't surprised. Lyles Carter was always in trouble about something. And so Miss Pierce took Lyles Carter out in the hall. These were the days of corporal punishment. Remember, whoopings. So she took him out in the hall, but not beyond the earshot of the students. And that had to be intentional. And they listened 
And Catherine Tucker Wyndham said, I heard the licks, licks that were intended for me. Now, this is not a devotional book. It's not a Christian book. It's a story about growing up in Alabama. I heard the licks, licks that were intended for me. Now, we can't push that story too far. God is not like a a frightened, angry teacher, and and Jesus is not Lyles Carter who always was in trouble. No story uh, can bear the weight of the mystery of the cross, but you hear those words, uh, he bore the licks that were intended for me in a way beyond, uh, far beyond what I can understand. Out of love, uh, God offers his son in our place. 1 Peter 2.24, he He bore my sins in His body on the cross. And I hope you won't think it's hokey, but I I just want us to sing as an act of worship and gratitude. And if you know it, and I think many of you will, would you sing with me, please? And when I think... That God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art.